Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here, we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loves us and raise people up in His love. We are grateful to have you listen in. Regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. Good morning, everyone. Good, good morning. It is a... I don't know why I always give you guys the weather of every Sunday, but I have... Um, I tend to get a little bit more sad when it's gloomy outside and a little bit more happy uh, when it's bright outside. And today, it is bright outside. It's a beautiful fall afternoon. Uh, I hope you guys can take advantage of it. We are now halfway through September. It's, it's really, it's really wild. Um, and um, as usual, we are in the midst of quarantine. All of our lives have not gone back to normal, and I know that might be really discouraging for some of you, but. It's really, really wonderful to see you guys here today, and it's really wonderful to be able to join in on worship together. Uh, for those of you guys who might be joining in for the first time, my name is Pastor Jane. I am the English-speaking pastor of North Boston, KUMC, and uh, our family here. And so we just welcome you in service this morning. Um, please stick around after service, say hello. Um, it's a little bit freaky to meet people online, but it's a little bit easier um, as well. Well, we've been going through our sermon series through Acts, and uh, this sermon series has started <laughs> since Easter, and we are still there, y'all. It is September. Easter was, I don't know, sometime between March and April. I'm pretty sure it was April. I don't even, I barely remember. Um, but we are literally in our fifth or sixth month through the book of Acts. And let me tell you, I was not happy about, I will always say this over and over. This was not my idea. This was Hananim's idea. I had something else in mind. The Lord said preach through Acts. And we are still in Acts. Um, so I pray that this message hits you. Um, just as much as it hits me. We are, last week we talked a little bit, last week we talked a little bit about what it means to be teachable. Um, but this week we are continuing through the book of Acts into Acts chapter 19. Would you open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 19, verse 11? The book of Acts exists between John and Romans um, in the New Testament. And we are in Acts chapter 19. Verse 11, Acts chapter 19, verse 11. Uh, because the author of this book is Luke, and Luke is a doctor, I highly recommend you guys read this with the NIV or the NRSV translations, but I'll be reading it from the ESV. Um, so that's why there might be discrepancies in that text. If you have an ESV text in front of you, that's fine. Acts chapter 19, verse 11. This is the word of God. As we read through God's holy and perfect word, I pray that even though we don't get to stand together corporately, um, that we would hold all due reverence in front of God's holy and perfect word. This is the word of God. And he entered the synagogue 
Oh, that's verse 8. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Skeva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were also now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, said to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in praying?
we worship you. We glorify your name. Abba, I am a small human being that has no right on my own to stand here. But God, you have regarded our hopeless estates and demonstrated your love by dying for us while we were still enemies. And Father God, it is in your grace and in your power and in your anointing that I get to stand here today and preach to your people. But God, I humbly confess before you that this is your word and your word alone. Father God, I pray that you would be magnified today as we talk about half-truths. As we talk about how there is no greater power and no greater name than the name of Jesus. Jesus, I pray that you would come and that you would speak to all your people. That your Holy Spirit would fall upon every head right now. Holy Spirit, we have all different people in our ministry from all different points of life. Jesus, we pray that your grace would encounter them right where they are, just as they are right now be it in comfort or conviction or wisdom or understanding or grace. Holy Spirit, take us to the next level with you and I will hide me behind your cross that only your words are accentuated and that only you are magnified. We stand here as a body in Christ because you have died for us. We give you glory. Work on us, Jesus, as we work out our salvation today. Work in us for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, so today, the title of today's, the title of today's passage is called The Chaos of Half Gospels. I'm going to say that one more time. The title of today's sermon is The Chaos of Half Gospels. For those of you guys who are writing down notes, I'm just going to say the main idea. Half-truths cannot defeat the enemy, and half-truths do not bring clarity. Only the Word of God does. I'm going to say that one more time. Half-truths cannot defeat the enemy, and half-truths do not bring clarity. Only the word of God does. The chaos of half gospel. So we're going to unpack this main idea for a little bit. But before we do that, in the spirit of how we've been going through Acts, (laughs) I want to ask you guys a question. What is truth to you? When it comes to God... And when it comes to your lives, all of our lives 
are not just governed by values. Those values would not be important if they were not true. It is not far-fetched to say that our lives are governed by truths that we believe. So what is truth to you and what truths do you live by? Just want you guys to be thinking about this. You're not going to be able to see the connection. It's not going to be as overt, but I think it's important for us to identify this question, for us to be able to understand what exists as half-truths in our lives. Now, before I go into this, I usually go into context, but I want to clarify what I mean by half-gospels and half-truths. Okay, what is a half-truth? What is a half-gospel? A half-truth or a half-gospel is something that is 50% true and 50% not true. And what ends up happening is that it sounds true, but it is not real. A really good example of that is actually in Matthew 4, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. And he quotes scripture to tempt Jesus. Didn't, is it not written? Or in Genesis 3, when the serpent says, did God not say? Where the truth of God in and of itself is taken out of context and twisted so that it sounds true, but it is false. Now our world is governed by half-truths. But the danger of half-truths rather than outright lies is that it sounds true and it takes spiritual discernment to be able to identify what is true and what is false. So that is what a half-truth is. Now we're going to go into the context of today's passage, but Acts 19 is about the courage of the missionary and the courage of God's people as their lives bring out the falsities of half-truths within society or lies that are well buried in something that sounds legit. So the context of today's passage is that Apollos' ministry is still continuing. We talked about Apollos last week about teachability and humility and a leader. And Paul continues to preach across minor Asia Minor. And he gets to preach in Ephesus in Asia for two years. The importance of this cannot be stressed enough because it gets to the point right before, in the verses right before what we read in, in eight verse, verses 8 through 10, it says that all people in Asia, that is Asia Minor, heard the gospel, both Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile, got to hear the gospel. And Paul was not a man that did short-term missions. But he stayed there for two years. The significance of that is that Paul gets two, 52 weeks times two, 104 weeks to unpack the gospel, to argue against 
other religions and to really make a case for Christ, breaking down the truths of the gospel uh, in different books. And so people were not just coming to salvation, but they were being spiritually fed for two years. And it got to the point where every person, all panta, all people heard the gospel. Now we start, our passage starts with the, the fact that Paul was given an extraordinary power and anointing by God to the point where handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin and that had touched the skin of other people were able to carry the power to leave, have the diseases leave them and evil spirits depart from them. The only other time just a touch of someone's clothing was able to heal the lives of others is Jesus. We saw that in, in, in the time where everybody was pressing up against Jesus, but a woman with faith held the bottom of his robe and was healed of her bleeding. It's visibly stated here that Paul had extraordinary power, that the handkerchief and apron of Paul, when it had touched the skin of other people, their diseases were able to leave them and their evil spirits were able to depart. But even though, so now like we see that people are like mass passing out, the clothing that Paul had, it's amazing that God works in such miracles through Paul, obviously. But we see here that in the midst of the ministry of Paul, people start to distort and twist the very message and the very spirit of Paul's ministry because of what? The handkerchiefs and the aprons. See, even though it was ultimately about God, that God was the one to heal people, that God was the one to really empower Paul, that God was the one to preach through Paul and save other human beings, people began to put emphasis on the materials of Paul and the person of Paul. It was a very... It's a very cultural notion that you can store someone's spiritual energy just by holding onto their items and use their energy as kind of talisman to be able to bless people and heal people. And it began, it began to be that people were starting to worship and glorify the handkerchiefs, the clothes, the cloths that had touched Paul's skin. And that kind of theological assumption about spiritual power began to manifest itself in different ways. What ended up happening, exorcists that tried, that were Jewish, began to call upon the name of Jesus. Exorcists began to call upon the name of Jesus. So the exorcist said, I adjure you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul believes 
inciting the name of both Jesus and Paul and believing that their names and their possessions are like talismen that carry spiritual energy. Now we know, you and I know, for those of us who have read scripture enough, we know that the name of Jesus is powerful enough to save many, many people. And the name of Jesus alone is so powerful. Now, if the name of Jesus was enough, how come this episode happens to them? How come the exorcists get overwhelmed by the spirit? And that's something that we will elaborate on as we continue. So they call upon the name of Jesus, whom Paul believes... And then the evil spirit, this powerful evil spirit in this individual says to them, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize. But who are you? And the first hint we see here of this cultural misunderstanding of the power of God is shown not in the words of Paul, not even in the words of other people, but in the words of the evil spirit. This is the first time we see a half-truth come to life. Who are you? It's not that the handkerchiefs themselves, it's not that the items themselves carry spiritual energy. But it's the God that they believe in and the identity we have upon being saved. For those of us who might have a relationship with God, who might be beginning a relationship with God, or who are questioning the relationship with God, I want you guys to understand something very fundamental about our walks. God, when he saves us, he doesn't just save us. He doesn't just save our sins. He doesn't just target our actions. But the powerful work of God is a change in identity. In Romans, Paul says, once you were slaves to sin, and now you are slaves to righteousness. And then he goes on in chapter 8 to say, we have been given the spirit of adoption as sons. Why does Paul specify the word sons? That's not a reference that discludes or excludes daughters. The word son is not a, is not a title of gender, but it is a title of power. See, because sons were heirs. And what God is saying here is that we have been given the spirit of adoption as sons, as heirs, by which we can cry out, not master, not Adonai, Lord, but Abba, Father. The work of salvation is not merely justification of sins, a propitiation of sins. It is an identity, an entire fundamental relationship that shifts. Where no longer are we enslaved masters to sin by, by sin, but we are tied to in sonship and bought with a price. Into his kingdom. Now, when Paul performs miracles, 
It's easy to glorify the miracle. When Samson was strong and he was able to carry buildings and defeat whole armies, it's easy to glorify Samson because you see his might, you see his performance. And we, in our limitedness, in our transientness, it's easy for us to glorify. It's easy for us to glorify Samson. And it's easy for us to glorify what we see. But one thing that we see in Paul and it happens the exact same way for the people who watch Paul give his miracles. But one thing we start to understand is that just because we see it that way, and just because we start to over-glorify that, that doesn't mean that that's the truth. Even when we're looking at Paul perform something that is of the truth, it was not the truth in the sense of how we were internalizing it. Even though Paul was invoking the name of Jesus, and not just that, but Paul was speaking from his faith to call upon the name of Jesus and have people be healed, even though it was the anointing of God that empowered Paul to do ministry, and it was the power of Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, that was able to save people through the mere contact of Paul. The anointing of God that spilled over Paul into everybody around him. Even then, there was a huge misunderstanding about where power comes from. Power doesn't come from spiritual power to defeat the enemy, to fight against the enemy. We are in spiritual battle in this world today, right? For those of us who do not believe that, I just want to gently take you to John chapter 4 when Jesus says God is spirit and those who worship God worship God in spirit and truth he says that in response to the Samaritan woman at the woman at the well and that's not the words of Paul that's the direct quote of Jesus and if God is spirit and if we are spirit as much as we are body and we live in a physical world how much more so then is there a spiritual realm and world and in those spiritual realm and world there are opposing forces and often the 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 miracles supernatural miracles that we see here is God's dominion over not just the physical realm but the spiritual realm right because we cannot see it it's seen as supernatural And people developed an understanding about the power of Paul. But we see here in the word of the evil spirit, in the word of the evil spirit, we see here the reality of what is actually going on in the spiritual realm. We see the reality of what is going on here. That it was not the power of Paul it was not the performance of Paul. It is not the spiritual power that Paul possesses that allows other people to be saved. But it is the identity of what we have in Christ that the power is not in the originator of a powerful person, but the power is in God and it is not in Paul because he is special, but it is the power and authority of the name of Jesus Christ is given to all those who believe in him, all those who have been changed by the gospel and given a new identity are brought into the kingdom of God. Those 
are the ones with power. That is what comes to light in the reality of this evil spirit. Because half-truths might sound real to us, but when push comes to shove and we're actually in spiritual battle, that's not what takes us through. And the evil spirit says, who are you? A call to the identity of those who are invoking the name of Jesus. Now, I want to make something very clear to you in this first point. If you don't believe in the gospel, you can call upon the name of Jesus all you want. But if you call upon the name of Jesus to test Jesus, instead of believe in the gospel... It ain't going to work unless, I mean, if there are situations where it has, where God intervenes and meets us because God is powerful enough. He does not need our faith. But we ourselves, invoking the power of God, without belief, without a change in identity, without this reception and this receiving of the love of God in our hearts, it's impossible. A lot of people ask me, Jane Doe, I, I believe in Jesus. I had a really spiritual summer. But right now I'm, I'm in this spirit of depression and I'm in this dark, dark place and I'm really confused about my life right now. And I don't know why I feel like my prayers aren't being answered. God was so close to me, nearly a season before. To you, I ask. Now I, I, I want to preface this with God loves your God loves you. He's with you in your pain. His presence is a promise to you. But when you invoke the name of Jesus, is that name a sticker or is it a seal upon your heart? Are you? Walking in, pressing into the authority that God has given you. Do you actually believe God? And we see here that these seven people who invoked the name of Jesus through the faith of Paul were overpowered and the word is mastered by this powerful demon. Rendered helpless, scratched up, wounded. I want to, before I move on from this, I want to point out a couple of things. Just to give us an example of how this applies in our life. A lot of the times, we might feel like we are closest to God when there is a powerful spiritual person around. When maybe Jane Doe is in the room preaching to you directly. You just feel the presence of the Spirit in the room. Or maybe when there's another powerful pastor or another powerful person, a mentor of yours, somebody you look up to, in the room you feel closer to God. And you start to pray to God in the aftermath of that encounter with God. You can't help but feel like you're closer to God when that person is present. And you can't help but feel like you can't talk to God on your own. So you start to almost try to borrow upon the power of the person that you were with. Remembering and recalling how God was close to you then and, and trying to bring that space about again. 
I want to denounce that. In Jesus' name, in your hearts right now, with the reality that all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to every single one of you, that God loves you just as much as the people in your life that you feel like are closest to God. That nearness to God is not something that you buy with spiritual maturity, but it is given to you by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God over your life. And that your illusion that is over your heart, ooh, I feel the Spirit with me when I say this, the illusion that you feel like you are far from God without that person is a lie. Designed to make you feel like your identity with Christ is an extension of somebody powerful. But let me tell you, intimacy with God is possible in your very room. God the Father is with you and has given you all the tools that you need to be close to Him. He is next to you right now. The Holy Spirit is all around you, inside you, right now. That is the lie of quarantine. That is the lie of the pandemic. That we are divided and that Satan can divide and conquer. But we forget our identity in Christ. You do not need a rise or a worship setting to be close to God. It's a matter of whether or not you believe in the name that you pray. For yourself. Not through Paul's faith. Not through Jane's faith. Not through your parents' faith. But for yourselves. If you believe in the name of Jesus, then you pray in. If you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling... Jane, how come my prayers don't work in my spiritual warfare? It is because of the half-truth of nearness to God, of how you invoke the power of God. You do not borrow the power of another person that is your pastor, that is your mentor. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to you. God has placed people in your life to lead you along the way. People like me, I am not your pastor because I am closer to God. It is because I have been anointed by God and given a mission by God to lead God's people in the right direction. To lead God's people ultimately to God. That is my whole role. And because of that, because I'm leading you, you might feel like I'm closer to God. That is a lie. That is a lie. And the more you buy into that lie and you do not fight that lie with the scripture that says that all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to you through the power of the gospel, through the name of Jesus that sets as a seal upon your heart and changes you, changes you from slave to son. When you don't, when you buy into the lie for yourself and get stuck in this vortex that you feel far from God. That's when you are conquered. It's not because God's not with you. Because what you believe in becomes your truth. 
is your truth about where God is in your life? Jane, I am wrestling. I am struggling right now. It is hard for me to see the reality of Jesus. I get it. What are you buying into right now? The truth doesn't change. Your identity doesn't change. Your salvation doesn't change. But how you are conquered in this moment? You know when you see like, it happens like, I don't, I know like, it was a huge theme in like Spider-Man when like the, the guy, the guy with the globe as a head. What's his name? Mysterio. Uh-huh. <laughs> Man who watches enough Marvel clips to be able to. Uh-huh. Yes, Mysterio. His whole thing is optical illusions. Tangible optical illusions that make you feel like you're somewhere else. And you have to learn to see past that. To understand the reality you're actually in. And that's when that optical illusion no longer has a hold over you. That is the nature of a half-truth. That is the nature of truth. That is the dynamic of truth. What is your truth? Now these seven sons of Skeva, they get completely, completely torn apart. And because of this situation, people begins to people begin to see the power of God when this happens. And the name of God is magnified. It says extolled. That word extolled means to be to be grown, to be magnified. Um, and so the name of Jesus is magnified because the power of God is revealed. And people begin to denounce idols and denounce magic. An enormous amount. It says 50,000 pieces of silver. You have to remember that Jesus was sold for 20. 50,000 pieces of silver's worth of books were burned. They didn't experience it themselves, but it was enough for them to understand the name of Jesus is glorified. Jane, you might ask here, Jane though, how come these people are able to see that the name of Jesus is glorified through another person, but these people aren't able to call upon the name of Jesus through another person's faith? Like how come in this situation, through another person's experience, other people come to Christ? But how come through this experience, it doesn't work that way? It's because the magicians here glorified the spirituality of Paul. And the experience here, the reality of this spiritual warfare, led people to see the power of God. What are you looking at? What are you turning to? Another way to discern when something is being preached to you is whether or not God is magnified. Whether or not God is actually magnified. You might also ask Jane, how come the name of Jesus is enough? Like, I I doubt sometimes. I doubt God sometimes. Does that mean that I have no power? I doubt Jesus. Does that mean that I have no power? God does not police our failings and our doubts. 
but he cares about the motivations of our heart. God is not out to police you. I doubt too. Luckily, our faith and our authority is not based on whether or not we doubt. It's not based on our performance. It's not based on who we are. It's based on God. It's based on what he did. I invite you guys all to read through Romans. I know a bunch of people at Discipleship are reading through Romans right now. But one really important thing to note is that before we talk about God in his love saving us, Romans 3 says God is faithful. First and foremost, he died on the cross for our sins because God himself is faithful. That's just in his character. And we are who we are because of God. But what impacts how much half-truths or the truth has a hold on your life is the foundation of your belief and the foundation of your motivations. God doesn't care to police you in that sense. He died for that. But it's a matter of your motivation. It's also a matter of how you view God. Is God your talisman? Is is heaven a golden ticket? Are you using the gospel to achieve what you want? Not just in life, but in your character. Or are you following God for God and for you? Do you pray to be healed? Or do you pray to know God? But here's the catch. When you pray to know God, everything comes with it. But the motivation of our heart single-handedly changes everything. Because there comes a point where God heals us. But it's not about the healing, it's about God. There comes a point where God might answer our prayer. But it's not about whether or not God answers our prayer. It's about God. It's about us realizing and internalizing on a deeper level, his love for us. So we see here that half-truths cannot defeat the enemy. But in the second part of this, we also see that half-truths do not bring clarity. And we see that in this man named Demetrius. Demetrius is a silversmith that calls together all the silversmiths and the artisans later on in Paul's time in Asia Minor. And he says, he holds a, a silversmith union meeting. So now there's a silversmith guild. Guilds were like little, uh, not little, large circles and networks of silversmiths. And that's how like they ran economics. They like would equalize prices. You know, everybody would, um, 
It would how it would be how the industry is normalized and whatnot. And Demetrius calls together all the silversmiths and the artisans and all the guilds, uh, the guilds of the the guild of the silversmiths, and he says, "The gospel is ruining our business and tarnishing the name of Artemis." Now there are six parts to what Demetrius says. The first thing he does is he draws attention to the wealth the silversmiths. Call, draws attention to what the silversmiths do for a living. The second thing he does is the impact of Paul's ministry. He explains how expansive Paul's ministry actually is and how much he affects. The third thing he does is he explains Paul's teaching concerning the gods. That Paul teaches that gods made with hands are not gods. Now the silversmith guild are the hands that make the gods. And then, so these are the three things that uh, Demetrius establishes before he establishes the fact that there's damage that can be brought. The first damage, that it, it can damage the guild, the silversmith guild, it can damage their business. The second thing, that it can damage the temple of Artemis. And the third thing, that it would damage the cult of Artemis. And that her grandeur and her power would be lost. So Demetrius, he gets up there on this like pedestal and he gives this elaborate sermon speech about how Paul is ruining the silversmith business and tarnishing the name of Artemis. And this, a lot of the times, this might sound religious, but it's not just religious, it's politically and also more importantly, economically driven. There are multiple layers to this. There's personal motivation, there's political motivation because there's a question of power in the area. And then there is a religious motivation. So this was politically, religiously, but most importantly, economically driven, and it incites furiousness, personal personal motivations coupled with a need to protect a cause. And what do people announce? What do people say when they get angry about what the gospel does to their to their livelihood? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the words that actually leave their mouths, the things that they actually end up chanting is great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But this riot and this fury is not just religious, but it is political because it's based in power and it's economic because it's based in commerce. It's not just a religious cause. There are political and personal financial motivations. And a riot happens. But the last part of what we've read today shows that no one understands why. Why is that? Why does a riot happen but nobody understands why? When something is spread that is not the truth, when something is spread that sounds like the half-truth, everyone is thrown into disarray. I want you guys to remember this for discernment in your own lives. When something is not true, there is disarray and chaos. 
The crowd, they dragged Paul's companions, Gaius and Aristarchus, and they dragged him. They dragged them, but they don't take them to court. But they incite the crowds. And there's just a rush of emotions from the crowd. And everyone starts to call for different things, and nobody understands why there's a riot to begin with before the, the chief clerk appeases the crowd. What is happening here? Well, obviously, what Demetrius is saying is clearly not even a half-truth. It's completely false. But the nature and how Demetrius goes about crafting his statement, I think, is really telling of how something can be religious but not religious. It's a political and economically driven religion at this point. And don't that sound familiar for us today? Because there is a confusion of what even they believe. Does it not remind you of political Christianity? Christians, I do not come here to preach about a political party, but to tell you about the danger of twisting together politics and Christianity. And when pastors and leaders and Christians drive home a political point that is outside of human rights and human dignity, one must question why. It is a confusion of the of the truth. What is your motivation for endorsing a political candidate for a position? What is the motivation of tying religion to a leader who does not represent the religion well? And I will go into how we can discern this later. When is Christianity political and when is our politics informed by Christianity? I'll, I'll explain that later. But those are not the only half-truths that exist in our church. Note the celebrity pastors that exist in our culture. If you know any good sermon that you've listened to, any good sermon that has, heard, that has been heard by hundreds of thousands of people, it usually boils down to this. God is taking you into a season of blessing. The power of the presence of God. Don't be afraid by the dark. Because this next season is going to be your season. I was reflecting the other day on the life of Moses. Now Moses is a really, really, really powerful leader. Obviously we know. He's seen by his, through him, through his leadership, he's seen in his day, in the time of his leadership, freaking the Red Sea, <laughs> splitting in half, and walls of water, and people walking through the freaking Red Sea to escape slavery. And 10 plagues. 
And the greatest nation of that time, the greatest emperor, empire of that time, being decimated. And we glorify him and we look up to him. But you know what the reality of Moses' life was? He was a prince of Egypt. He figured out who he was. He killed a man. Somebody was whipping a slave. He goes into the wilderness for 40 years. In the, in that midst, he's in Midian. God calls him back. He exodus he God calls him through the burning bush to go and be used by God. God successfully uses him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt to what? 40 years in the wilderness and Moses doesn't even get to enter into the promised land. There is nothing about Moses' time that screams societal success. God never promised that to him. I'm not trying to scare you guys. I'm not saying that God is not going to be with you guys and provide for you guys. Matthew 6 says, do I not clothe the flowers? Consider the wife, wild flowers, right? Tomorrow will worry for itself. At the same time, the promise of God is not grounded in our political, societal, economic prosperity. But for whatever reason, we get angriest at God when he does not give us wealth. When we are not doing well with our finances, with our futures, that is when we are rockiest with God. You know why we all have that undertone? It's because of the cultural Christianity that we have adopted. So on the one end, with preachers like Mike Todd, Stephen Furtick, there is this kind of message. But on the other hand, even the way we believe in God, and even the way that we might even be processing God for ourselves, depending on who we look up to, be it Mike Todd or John Piper, the way that we internalize theology and the way that we internalize our knowledge of God is informed by academia, by the enlightenment. So much so that we have gone to a level of pompousness that has nothing to do with God. We saw yesterday, I mean last week, through Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, how to speak to one another when we don't agree on the same thing in scripture. How to speak to one another when somebody has an incomplete understanding of the gospel. But how many people in our society today actually do that? Now, I know that John Piper actually, even for all his flaws, he tries his best. And so I'm not trying to damn them and say that they don't believe in Jesus. I have looked up to John Piper in my time, and I have gleaned on the wisdom of Tim Keller many a day. But we have to understand that, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The charismatic Pentecostal camp, they're wrong. The reform camp, even saying that, to use your understanding of God to assume superiority over another person. What the hell? Who are you? To say that somebody else 
is closer or farther or right or wrong. That is not your job. When God says test everything by the scriptures. Don't even try to get yourself to be knowledgeable in theology if you have not checked your pride. The most dangerous thing to a person who lacks humility is theological understanding. Because then your knowledge of God becomes a half-truth about how you are to be a Christian. So much of the way that we internalize scripture is motivated by culture. And we digest what is comfortable. Church, I implore you, be reconciled to the truth. I implore you, me too, let's be reconciled to God. Let's not make our Christianity about what we see and about people. Let us be reconciled to our identity and the intimacy and the authority that we have been given in God. That our lives would not be motivated by half-truths. The reason why the American church is failing is because the American church is built on half-truths. And if you feel like one church in America is better than another church in America, you have fallen for the lie. God loves you. God loves you. And he, in his faithfulness, has been faithful to you. When we were short of the glory of God, God was born into humility, into flesh. He was raised up and he died willingly on our behalf so that we can be sons and daughters. He became a curse for us. That is the truth. And he has given all authority on heaven and on earth to all of God's people. You are, you are an heir of righteousness. Spiritual maturity does not come in knowledge. It comes in the fear of the Lord. If you feel like you know God, but you do not fear the repercussions of these half-truths, then you are elementary in your understanding of Scripture.
Proverbs 3 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. Job 40 says, have you an arm like God? Can you save yourself? The reality and the weight of the glory of God is heavy. And we must not be swayed by the principalities of this world that leads us to have truths. Do some serious critical thinking. Question the way that you think. Question and bring all things into contention and measure it off scripture, even the things you learn in school. Do not live off of philosophical concepts and strategies in various fields. They are contrary to God. It is possible for you to not compromise your identity and live in the truth. For those of you guys who are stuck in lives and feel like God is far from you because of it. For those of you who are stuck in hopelessness and weakness. For those of you guys who might have been rendered powerless by people in positions of power in the church who have been marginalized and oppressed. The half-truth that you are less than another person in the eyes of God. Denounce that in your heart, in Jesus' name. God is with you. It is not the power of my faith that will set you free. It is not my advice that will set you free. It is the gospel that has been engraved upon your heart. The counselor that has been given to you already that sets you free. And when it comes to truth, ultimately the matter is about power. It's not about lies and and truth. It's not about falsity. In John 8, it's clear that truth is about power. When the gospel becomes the truth in your heart, it will develop power. And we see here the various half-truths that attack the church in Acts 19 on all fronts. It attacks the ministry of Paul. But what prevails? God's people because of God. Not God's people in a societal context. Not God's people in wealth. But God's people because of God. God prevails. God never fails. 
But Jane, does that mean that Christianity has to be completely separate? Like, there are so many elements, like, how do I separate culture from Christianity? How do I do that? Does that mean that I have to, like, unhinge everything? I want to point out that politics and society are important for the application of the gospel. If you know if you can remember back to last week, Apollos was not just learned, he was cultured, and that's what made him an effective vessel for the glory of God. You need to be able to apply the gospel to all parts of life, including politics and society. So I'm not saying to keep church and state separate and to live a double life. But what informs the other is going to be really important. If your faith is informed by your existing worldview about success, about accomplishment, about knowledge, about politics, about morals and even values, if your cultural understanding of society is what informs your faith, then that is what has power over you. But if it is your faith that informs the rest, it is the gospel that prevails. It is a matter of what informs what. Now, how do we apply this into our lives? First thing, nothing has power apart from God. Not God's people, not objects, not books. God. Nothing has power apart from God. Even if you are blessed through an individual, even if you are blessed through Paul's handkerchief, it is not Paul or the handkerchief that is a vehicle of power. It is the power of God alone that has been given to you and me. Now that might make you guys feel like, oh yeah, I I am able to internalize all of scripture on my own. Like, nobody has authority over me, except I just need to read it for myself. That's great. I, I, I commend your ability to work or your desire to work at your salvation. But you don't work at your salvation with um, confidence. Um... You don't work out your salvation with pride. You work it out with fear and trembling. Why do you think Paul says that? Yes, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to you. But if you internalize the half-truth of knowledge that way, if you've internalized it that way, then your testing is null and void. Because the lens of your perspective of reading scripture is not in the right place. Dare I say that? Because there are a lot of, there are a lot of pastoral giants that might live that way. But I believe that maybe it is their position of privilege that is blinding them. And that's between them and God. I don't judge them. The stuff that comes out of their mouth still is very wise. It's not mine. It's theirs. 
But may I be informed, not just my knowledge, but my posture of approaching scripture and approaching people be informed by God. That being considered, no one else has power apart from God, not God's people, not objects. The second thing is that God is, the, the gospel is contrary to societal prosperity. Our goal as a Christian is not just to be on at the top. God does do that for people. And if he does that to you, kudos to you. I am not good enough. I am not, I am not pure enough of a human being. I am not faithful enough as a human being to be in the top 1% of this country and, and be able to still live by the God. I don't think that, I don't think that I have it in me uh, to have that much money and yeah, I don't think I have it in me. Um, so kudos to you if you, if, if God has given you the gift of faith and purity of heart. But the gospel, the gospel is contrary to societal prosperity. Our goal is a changed lifestyle that breaks the paradigm, not to be at the top. The third thing is that God's truth brings clarity, and half-truth incites confusion. God's truth brings clarity, and half-truth incites confusion. The only thing that clears the air is the truth of God. And when half-truths come into the fray, it incites confusion. But God's truth also creates chaos in places of lies. God's truth does not align with the world, but it comes against. So be able to discern that. For example, like when the gospel hits you and you're like all wrecked and your heart is in disarray, and you feel really like called out and you feel really offended, but you also feel convicted at the same time. The gospel is offensive like that. You know what I mean? Um, that's because God is revealing things in you that is not necessarily aligned with him for the sake of, for the sake of aligning you to him, for the sake of his love for you. Um, and you might feel like, Oh, that's chaos. And it's chaotic. But the gospel brings clarity. So don't confuse uncomfortable clarity with confusion that is incited by half-truth as well. Make sure that you can discern that for yourself. We need to be courageous as well. The final point. We need to be courageous. Paul did not leave. If you guys read the rest of this chapter, one thing you'll note is that Paul, even when this riot was happening, he did not flee. He left after. We need to be courageous. We can stand firm in our authority in God. We can have a different identity in God. We can be convicted and move forward. We can do all of those things because we trust in God. Not just we trusting, not just trusting in God's power, but trusting God's love for you. You can take, even if your mom and your dad are annoying, you can take their chenzo, you can take their nagging at you if 
if you're certain that they love you. You might get offended, but you'll still trust that what they say is good for you. It takes trusting in God to follow God. And we can be courageous and we can believe that God's word is greater than all the other things of this world because we believe in God, because we trust in the power of God's presence, in the power of God's promise, in the power of God's love for us. Now that's a lot. And it might feel like it's all over the place and the application might feel like it's not really cookie cutter. So I'm going to repeat this main idea for you guys one more time. Half-truths cannot defeat the enemy. And half-truths do not bring clarity. Only the word of God does. And I'm going to re-ask you the question that I asked you in the beginning. Why? What are your truths? What do you believe is true? Remember, you do not need another person to be close to God. Being closest to God is really the most humbling and the scariest of all, honestly. And also remember, that the way that we might believe in God might be more informed by the world than it is informed by the Bible. We must be able to discern not just this world, but our hearts. Jando, how do I get myself to a place where my truth is the gospel? It's not just to sift through all your theological understanding and, and do some critical thinking. Yes, those things are first. Go to Christ. Christ has said in his word in John, I think it's 15 or 16, anywhere between 14 or 16 in John, he says, I have given you a counselor. That's the Holy Spirit in you. Go to Jesus. Don't just discern whether or not something is real or false in my sermon or in another person's sermon or or in your understanding or in this world or anything or in political Christianity. Don't just discern what is your half-truth or truth based on from your knowledge. Pray. It sounds cliche, but when you realize the magnitude of who God is, get to the source and kneel. Know who it is you're talking to. And ask. Be both reverent and also love, loving because God loves you so much. That powerful, big, big God loves you so much. And your life is not defined even by the ways that you might have been living these half-truths. He defines you based off of his love for you. There's nothing you can do to tear yourself away from that. So go, 
Go. Draw close to the presence of God. Be near to Him. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling as the Holy Spirit works in you. Will we take some time to pray? In what areas of your life do you feel are governed by half-truths? How have you allowed yourself to believe the lie of not being loved as much as other people, of not being intimate with God as much as others? When have you bought into the lies of political Christianity or just societal and cultural Christianity where you have forgotten what is the truth the gospel disrupts society the gospel disrupts our paradigms let God interrupt you right now Trust that He loves you as you press into whatever you've been living by that is not based on both good and bad. From wherever you're listening, we hope you were blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at mbkmc.com.